Hello and welcome to the next episode of Eldritch Girl, where we move on to chapter 14 of The Crows. Content warnings for this chapter are Mutation, Eldritch Body Horror, and Ricky Porter. Uh, <laughs> um, as usual, um, you can find this book on Amazon, Smashwords, and my Kofi shop, the ebook only. Um, you're welcome to check out my Kofi because I've posted a load of stuff on there for supporters only for Monstrous May um, and some free stuff as well. So you get some deleted scenes and um, you also get some scenes that never made it into 13th, which is the next book, which is also available to buy. Um, you can read 13th without having read The Crows um, or without having finished The Crows but um, it's a good idea to finish The Crows first I think because you may be spoiled a little bit by what's going to happen but we'll see. Um, I hope you enjoy it. 13th will be read out on the podcast for season two. The art is by Tom Brown and Gemma Cartmel has done the theme tune for it as well the same as with this one. But for now, let's head back to the crows. Chapter 14, Victory is Mine, in which part one of Ricky's prophecy is fulfilled. 5th to the 6th of May. On Saturday, the soothsayer moved into the cellar. He came via the smuggler's tunnel and frightened the ghost into hiding. Carrie didn't mind that. She hoped he would keep to himself. He didn't bother to talk to her all day, but she could hear his gruff, low voice carrying on a one-sided conversation when she opened the utility room door. At least, it sounded like a one-sided conversation, until she tried to catch the actual words, and then it was garbled nonsense. He was speaking Old English to himself mainly, but although muffled, the repeated modern English phrase eight days made it up to her ears like a chant. He didn't come up to eat or say hello but she could hear him scraping things across the cellar floor until she went to bed. Against her better judgment and the repeated warnings not to drink it, the only thing that worked for the guilt and the nausea was Ricky's mystery tea. Its calming numbness spread over her mind and left her fearless, her stomach settled, her mind blissfully blank. The white noise of anxiety and guilt reverberating in the background of her life died and went silent. Fortified by its calming balm, Carrie rang Anne just to hear her stepmother's voice, and they talked about her dad's health and curtain fabric and where Carrie was spending Christmas, while Kathy Ross dripped ectoplasm down the chimney breast behind her, and the serial killer from the woods made himself at home under her feet. Sunday was meant to be her shift to work, but Pauline called and said they didn't need her. Zero-hour contracts for a bitch. Carrie was already halfway into town, so she carried on walking in and decided to visit the library instead. The library was instantly welcoming, a building designed to help you forget about the outside world, an escapist luxury in beige and cinnamon. The glass foyer glinted out into the, onto the central square, opposite the town's morgue, a palatial building that also housed the council offices on the upper stories. The library seemed a tad embarrassed by the ostentatiousness of its neighbour, its own Georgian features heavily remodelled in a modest, accessible fashion. There was a small counter selling coffee and snacks, a seating area replete with charging points and three floors of books. The town records, Carrie was informed, were on the lower ground floor. Chest fluttering, Carrie's alarm bells were jangling all at once with nothing to pull the cord. The librarian was an elderly retiree and perfectly lovely. 
There was not a shade of judgment in her voice, not a question mark around the makeup covering the latest bruises, not a whisper of gossip about her house or her neighbour or the man her neighbour had most recently killed. Carrie asked about the History Society records and whether they were back copies of the Pagamon Sea Gazette, and headed to the lower ground, where there was no body to be seen or heard, and the air was soft with old leather, sleeping pages, and clean carpet. The idea of talking to anyone or asking for help filled her with low-level dread, despite the tea. Must go to the doctors, can't go on like this. Ricky said the tea wasn't a replacement. The newspapers were on microfilm, right at the back of the reading area. Fortunately, most were digitised, and the library computers had a subscription to their digital repository. She did a quick search for names, starting with Colonel Mark Curtis. It came up with three hits. The first was a report on the History Society being temporarily disbanded in 1943, after its 60th anniversary. Carrie blinked. Clicking through, she was directed to the highlighted section of the scanned paper, where a photograph of the remaining members stared sombrely out at her. This must be some mistake. Colonel Mark Curtis, Roman nose and all, was front and centre of the group, with a man the caption named as Lionel Bishop. It was undoubtedly the same Mark Curtis that she had met at the History Society, but that couldn't be possible. There behind him were another three familiar faces, faces she recognised from Beverly's living room. The Pendle sisters, Mrs Wend, Mrs Foreman and Mrs Shaw. There were others, too, surnames she vaguely recognised. Carrie changed her search. She looked for any reference to Mrs Wend, and the Gazette applied to the number of hits, including another two pictures. One was a flower show, also in 1943, the headline proudly stating, The show must go on. According to the article, Eileen Foreman had won first prize for her black roses for the fifth year in a row. Eglantine Valmai Pritchard, Tina Harris's formidable ancestress, had come second, and, oh dear, Beverly Wend had taken third. How old was Mrs. Wend really? The picture showed three unsmiling women, clearly uncomfortable with standing next to one another. Eileen Foreman was, again, recognisable from the portrait hanging in Wonderwick, a determined proud jaw raised above her trophy, a woman in her thirties. Miss Pritchard was a large, stout woman of middle age, severely clad in tweed with her hair piled in a no-nonsense bun. Tina had certainly inherited her physique. Mrs. Wend looked the most displeased with her prize, piercing gaze staring straight out of the photograph at Carrie as if to say, What are you looking at, dear? Carrie hastily clicked back and checked the other photograph. This was from 1998 and had something about a charity bake sale record. Carrie changed Wend to Pendle and tried again. This time, only one picture. Carrie clicked on it and nearly fell off her chair. There, from the 11th of June, 1888, in a piece on the inaugural Pagamon Sea Flower Show, was the same photograph Carrie had spotted in Beverly's living room. I was 18 there, Beverly Pendle I was then. A young girl in a straw boater standing by a rosebush, a malevolent smile of secret knowledge on her face. Beverly Pendle, then a budding gardener and winner of the best rose in show. Carrie closed her search and stood up so abruptly she nearly knocked over her chair. This explained something, but she had no idea what. She either needed a stiff drink or something sticky sweet to shove in her face. The tea wasn't cutting it. Grabbing her bag, she headed out into the open air, practically jogging across the street to the Sandbox Cafe, where Rich and Jerry Ashdown's homemade muffins would smother some of the insanity with their salted caramel filling. 
Ricky had said something about a youth right, hadn't he? Well, the colonel looked exactly the same in 1943 as he did now, but he wasn't young. Was he undead, or immortal, or what? And what the hell did this have to do with anything? A bunch of immortals, or gods, or whatever they were, converging in a perfect storm, all to kill a little girl in 1958 and reap the eldritch rewards? What were the rewards? Longer life? Why kill Cathy Ross? Convenience? Where was her tongue? She ordered a coffee and a muffin from the owner, Richard Ashdown, while his husband Jerry gave her a wave and started getting her order ready, hoping they wouldn't ask about the bruises under her makeup or try and chat. She didn't have the capacity today. She retreated to a corner table with a limited view of the street and wished she'd bought about five more muffins. Ricky hadn't seemed remotely bothered by the idea his gran or his sisters were responsible. Although he had abducted and tortured a total stranger to death for his mother's pies and some bloody ritual, so why on earth would a dead child of a chimney bother him? No, not just any stranger, although that was bad enough. Phil. He'd abducted and tortured Phil, the man she'd lived with for four years. It was the stab of relief that prompted the guilt. Carrie rubbed the less tender side of her face, wishing she hadn't made that connection. The tea was wearing off. The enormity of what he had done was returning to haunt her. She shoved the muffin in her mouth and the first bite hit her tongue with an explosion of rich, sweet heaven. Energies. What was it Ricky had said about energies? Channeling them, opening something? She nearly had it. It was close, a whispered suggestion out of earshot. No, she didn't have it yet. Energies. Something jolted through her, a static charge, sending the cafe spinning out of reach, then snapping back into focus. Whoa, love, what just happened? Carrie blinked. Absently, she rubbed her midriff where some memory pressed against her skin. I feel different. What happened? Her phone rang, an unknown number. She answered it without worrying about who was on the other end. Yeah? Hi, is this Caroline? Yeah, who's this? She grabbed her coat, folding it over one arm. Um, this is awkward. It's, it's Tom? Tom Hoskins, Phil's cousin? I don't know if you remember, we met a couple of times. Oh, sure, Tom, hi. She waved at Richard, heading for the door. How are you? Um, I'm fine, thank you, but this is a bit awkward. It's just that Phil didn't show up at work today, and long story short, his mum's been calling me, so I, I know he left ours, and he, well, I overheard him on the phone leaving you a voicemail message. I got that, yeah, but I don't know who he is, Carrie said, voice steady as a rock, telling the absolute truth. You know what? He did come by, but we've got nothing to talk about. He didn't stay. My neighbour might have seen him go. Want me to give you his address? They don't have a phone, I don't think. All right? Yeah, sure, I'll get a pen. Carrie wandered down the street, expecting the guilt to hit at any moment, but it didn't. Something in the back of her mind, some tiny voice whispered from the void, This is wrong. Something's wrong with us. Okay, Tom said after some muffled rummaging. It's Bramble Cottage, Redditch Lane, Pagavon Sea. There was dead silence. Tom hung up. Carrie smirked, the relief crashing back, but the flotsam of remorse and fear was nowhere to be felt or found. Like magic, she thought, Ricky was dead right. Dead. Ha! <laughs> What's wrong with me? Nothing's, what's it called, acclimatisation. She waited for the bus at the stop and was almost offended when she had to pay. The ritual was done. 
She was out, of course, but that was fine. He hoped she'd stay out long enough for him to clean the eyeballs off her kitchen counter. Gerald would have liked them, but they were necessary for this last bit. He had folded his clothes up on the table, knowing the full body change was close. Fairwood had completely accepted him. The pendle stone was attached to the house, as much a part of it as all the other bits cobbled together, all of it adding layers of life and personality, all of it now one cohesive whole. His energies flowed through it, and he was now a part of her, a part of them both, though it was getting hard to see where Fairwood ended and Carrie Rickard began. The house spoke to him now, whispering to him like it did to her. Ricky sank to his knees in rapturous delight, head lifted to the ceiling, letting her speak in all her voices, her rooms, her whispers. He choked on joy. This was all he had wanted, all he had ever wanted, ever since she called to him through the trees and then wouldn't let him in. It wasn't personal. It was never personal. His guts gave a sudden, painful twist. Skin over his stomach stretched transparent thin, sweat beading through his pores, dry heat filling him up. Smoke pearled through his mouth, ash coating his throat, the taste of his own flesh burning up inside him, paired with the rusty tang of his own hot blood. For a moment, there was no more pain. The front door opened and shut. Her footsteps made him smile. She would be the first to see him change. That felt fair, somehow. Oh my God, Ricky! Her hand reeked of processed sugars, but he tried not to show his distaste. Good, you got here, he managed as the split reached his throat. Not, not long. What's happening? Oh, she was doing it again, stroking his head, the decadence, that delicious edible feeling flowing through him, corrupting like sepsis. He rolled his eyes back, pressing his head into her hand. His guts ached, the changes rolling and breaking in feverish waves. It hurts, he moaned, another knife twist, wrenching something free that shouldn't be. Fuck me, it bloody hurts. He looked down. His stomach bulged, skinned in two flaps like an unbuttoned shirt, draped uselessly over an amniotic sack of anaconda coils. Mucus coated his hands as he tried to hold himself together, hands he didn't recognise as his. His or hers? Was there a difference? Can't tell, can't see, can't feel anymore. Ricky, what do I do? What's happening? His eyelashes fluttered involuntarily as he forced himself to focus on her face, and it took him a moment to realise why she appeared to be strobing. What's that? Never seen that expression before. She worried or what? They call it concern. You in here too? Bloody hell, head's getting crowded, head's bursting. That was a conscious thought too far. The pressure pain shot into his skull, breaking over his brain beneath the bone. Thought evaporated. Skin split. Nerves screamed, wrenched apart. Synapse flares dotted his blank-eyed vision, turned in on himself, inside out, ripped open. Things crunched into place. He threw off his old name with his old skin, both too small for him now. They lay discarded on the kitchen floor as he stretched, setting his monstrous beauty free. At last it tasted the air, opened its third eye, saw the glory of the weird as plainly as the dancing constellations of the sun-robbed sky. He couldn't see Fairwood's weird. Perhaps things were different for houses, even sentient ones. He looked instead for its essence, such a small thing, and there it was, a fragile, cold, dark glow gleaming with oil-slick brilliance in the heart of the house.
he drew it into himself, absorbing it through the angles of his new existence. He had waited so long to answer the siren call that drew him there. He had overcome the cruel curse that kept him from it, and now he was restored with it, both of them beautiful. Who did that? Caroline Rickard was glowing like an ember, rivers of energy passing through her in the full spectrum of reds and oranges, vermilion bleeding into gilded tangerine, ice blue edged with a crackle of fear. He was meshed with Fairwood, and Fairwood was intertwined with her. Still indistinguishable the way a climbing plant can be disentangled from a trellis, but if she was not careful, she would take root like ivy, and then the disentangling would cut her free from the source of her life and being. He saw into the threads of her weird, weaving before his eyes, speeding towards the infinite. He saw what was coming, where it ended, where the final thread was cut, and as it crystallised in his mind, so did something else, a forbidden thought, a deep, taboo desire. He wanted to change it. The weird bucked like a billowing curtain, throwing him down and out. His beautiful, living, rippling skin shrank around him and bled out human dermis. Raw pink patches of new skin constricted, cling film tight, dripping gelatinous residue as it leaked from the inside out. The world spun away, the kitchen solidified, reality returned to its usual number of dimensions. His limbs bound themselves to the usual number. He was naked and alone, shivering in the enormity of the universe. Carrie was staring at him, covering her mouth with both hands, wide-eyed. He hadn't noticed the colours in them before, the flecks of green and ochre in the irises. It's bloody cold in here, he croaked, gathering up his old skin rags without any clear idea of what to do with them. Carrie lowered her hands, pale with shock. She looked him over, lingering in several places south of his face. Oh my God! How, how, how can you be that? Where did... There were coils with fucking faces in. Where... Jesus! She stopped. Do you want to put your clothes back on? He remembered he'd been naked when she came in. No sense ripping his only clothes in the change. Good thought. He handed her the old skin and she stood holding it in both hands as if she'd never seen a human shed before. He dressed, wiping himself over with a tea towel. What do you think? he asked. Carrie held out the skin rags. Ah, his old skin would go well with the waste bags he'd saved when she was in that coma. Two ingredients to something exciting he'd find a good use for. He grinned, taking it back from her. Well? She stared, stunned. A fair response. He thought she needed some encouragement. Beautiful, ain't I? Beautiful? Carrie spat the word out like a rotten grape, her voice shaking. My God, Ricky, that was horrific! Something writhed, unfamiliar in his chest. No, familiar, bringing back thoughts of childhood, of family, of... Carrie was watching his face and she changed tack. I mean, majestic, yes, impressive. Really? The writhing wasn't physical. He couldn't control it. It surged up to his throat in a hard lump like his grandmother's trifle. He swallowed it back down, but it brought tears to his eyes. Fuck me, not this again. Really? She let out a shaky breath, took a step towards him and tentatively held out her arms. He eyed her, askance, but remembered on the lawn where she had held him, flung herself at him without a weapon or a curse, 
pressed herself into his chest and gripped his neck like a noose. This seemed less violent, and at least it was an offer this time. His new skin tingled. Do I look the same? he asked, inching closer. Do I look like the old me? She nodded. Her eyes were wet too, pink with shock, and he hoped regret at her first reaction. He could tell she was sorry for not seeing the beauty in him, but mistakes were to be learned from. She would see it the second time. You look great, she said, dampness leaking into her voice. You did that. You frightened her. Even Fairwood sounded like him now. He accepted the admonishment and frowned. Bloody hell, love, come here. He gave in to the lure of someone's touch on his new skin, but also in response to Fairwood's reprimand. Beauty could be frightening. To his surprise, she crumpled into him, shaking, but he didn't touch her in return. His grandmother had been the last to hug him, but that had been a long time ago. Your clothes smell, she said, muffled warm against his neck. His grandmother still said this. He gave her the stock answer, not knowing where to put his hands. I'll wash him. He settled for patting her back twice and dropping his arms to his sides, but she didn't let go. She was heron slender, vixen light. His mother would love to have her for her own, her own daughter that never was, sit her in the chair in front of the dressing mirror and nail her hands to it when she fidgeted and brush her hair for hours and hours until all the gold in it was spun cobweb fine and she wasted away into beautiful bones. But she'd be dead soon anyway. Will you do the... You know, his tongue disobeyed, colour rising to his cheeks. She looked at him, uncomprehending. He tried again, the writhing back, but this time of a different nature. The, you know, when you stroke my head like you do. I don't mislike it, I said I didn't. He knew he was mumbling. She stroked his head. Ripples of childish pleasure ran through him. His mother only stroked his head when she wanted something. The luxury was intoxicating. He closed his eyes. Who'll do this when she's dead? One week left. I can't change her weird. It can't be changed. She pressed against his chest, the length of her warm through the fabric. Her arm was around his ribs, under his arm, her hand on his back. His mother had tried this once, not willing to take another dose, lured him in with the affection and tried to stab him in the lung. She don't have a knife, does she? She wouldn't. The palm flat, splayed, unarmed, a star in the middle of his spine. What's she doing? Her breath caressed his chin. He could drink it. He opened his eyes. Carrie's were an ocean of hazel and green-flecked blue, her eyelashes ruffled, skin masked with makeup that gave it a more even tone and hid the contusions administered by the fireplace. He could see her contours in detail, the true shape and the shape marred by puffiness, the light swelling spoiling the line of her cheek. Careful with her, she's all flesh and fibre, not brick and stone. She's so close, house bells and buckets of blood, she's so close, what do I do? He froze. Carrie gave him a smile of steel, kissed him once on the cheek like his never sister, as if to prove she wasn't afraid after all, and gave his head a final stroke. The chaste, firm brush of her lips set his face on fire. There, how's that? He released a breath. Yeah. That's all right. She took his hand in hers. Okay. Do you want to just leave things here a minute, come into the other room and we can sit, relax. I'll put the telly on if you watch it, I don't know, or we could read or something. 
can we just do that for a minute? Nothing eldritch, nothing weird, nothing involving tentacles? I don't think they're tentacles, he mumbled. She cocked an eyebrow at him. I've got a ghost to worry about, mate, and a dead ex-boyfriend. Can we not split hairs about your anatomy until after it's properly sunk in? He nodded. Not a word about this, he warned. I don't want anyone knowing, not yet. Okay. She led him through into the living room, switched the television on and flopped onto the sofa in what seemed like one fluid movement. He hesitated, but she grabbed a cushion and plumped it on her lap. He grunted, misliking the flickering thing demanding their attention. Settling on the sofa with his back to it, he rested his head on the cushion so that his second mouth faced the screen and, lulled into a doze by her gentle touch on his head, his eyes grew heavy enough for him to sleep. So, victory is mine. Um, that's the end of part two. I'd really like to know what you're thinking so far. Um, is Ricky the main antagonist of the novel? That's um, something that's come up a few times. People have um, sort of wanted to discuss that. I'd love to know what you think about that. How, <laughs> um, I'd also like to know like, how you're finding the gothic tropes and what I'm doing with them and if that appeals to you if you like that um i don't know i just i'm interested and if there's anything you want to ask like i'm not sure what to what people want to hear in these kind of like me rambling sections um so give me something to talk about um and i will tackle it going forwards so next time is going to be part three so we're approaching the end of those 33 days. Carrie's, uh, Carrie's time is running out rapidly. So part three is the 9th to the 13th of May. And 13th of May is the um, is game over. So let's see how that all pans out. Um, yeah, and then that will be the end of the season, guys. That will be the end of it. We'll be back. Um, I'll have a bit of a break. And um, then I'll start serialising 13th in the same way, which is the next novel. If you've had a chance to read that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I hope you read it. Um, and I'm going to serialise that as the next one. And get cracking on a third one, because otherwise there won't be a season three for a really long time. Um, and you just have to put up with that. But yeah, let me know what you think. You can um, chat to me on Twitter at cmrosens, Instagram cm.rosens. Um, if you're Facebook inclined, I've got a Facebook page forward slash cmrosens. I've also got a verified Goodreads page. So, yeah, like feel free to, um, to hit me up on there as well. Yeah, I hope you have a great week and um, see you soon when we start the next bit. Do, 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 do. Um, exciting times ahead.